Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studio, it's time for Family Business Radio. Showcasing outstanding family businesses and the advisors who assist them. Good afternoon. You're listening to another episode of Family Business Radio. I am your host, Anthony Chen. Today we have three amazing guests who share their origin stories and the things that they do in their business that makes them unique. So for our first guest opening up our show, welcome to the show, Robin. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me to be here. Great. So share with us, what is the origin story of K&J Mechanical? So we started where we originally started in Chicago. That's where I'm from, the Chicagoland area. And my husband's been in the business for about 21 years now. We started our business as a union construction business, just small family business. And we started back in 2012 in the industry. And since then, about almost six years ago, we relocated down to Florida and continued our business and expanded down here in Florida doing about the same. And we actually just started another division in the fire stopping side of the uh, business. So we pretty much do all construction, very little residential, uh, but we work as a subcontractor with prime contractors um, on pretty large projects. We do a lot of high-rise condos, apartment buildings, Um, And then we also do restaurants and those types of businesses as well. So, yeah, we've been in business since 2012 and we're still going strong and we're looking at another great year this year in business. Awesome. So share with us, what kind of spawned the whole construction business and even narrowing down to your specialty of insulation? Sure. So my husband started back in the union with his family. He actually was working with his father back in uh, 1999, uh, right out of high school. He started with his dad in the business and he learned the trade. Um, And we had um, back in, I want to say it was 2001 is when we met. And at that point, we just starting out, ended up having kids, getting married. And he decided at that point that he wanted to go off on his own and that he felt that he would be really good at being in business, doing what he does, because he did very well, very hard worker. And that's what started the ball rolling with him wanting to get into his own business. And so from there, that's when we chose to get into our own business. And he had a lot of connections in the industry. So basically what his industry is mechanical insulation is as we go into these uh, construction projects working with HVAC contractors and plumbers. Sometimes we do work underneath electricians, but we go in and you see those your big duct work, some of them ex- is exposed in these commercial buildings. Mm-hmm. So we go in and we insulate with a fiberglass material around the duct work. And we insulate those ducts to keep them from sweating. And then also goes with the piping for plumbing pipe. We insulate the plumbing pipe to keep the pipes from sweating because that's where you have a lot of your mold issues when those pipes sweat. It starts to get that condensation and that's what causes some mold issues. So we go in and insulate those pipes and that duct work and that helps prevent those issues from happening. So that's pretty much a pretty much self-explanatory of what we do. Not many people understand when you say mechanical insulation there, what's that? So it's mm-hmm. basically just insulating pipes and ducts in commercial buildings. 
it goes a little beyond because sometimes when people think of insulation, the, the first thing is, oh, so it's going to like what lower my heating and, and, and air cooling costs. But here it sounds a little bit more involved specifically to prevent well, mold. Yeah. And in that, that, so I will say when you're looking at doing like most people, a majority, I should say, of houses have insulation in their homes and that does help with your heating and your cooling bills. So when you have that in your homes, that does help with that. But on the commercial aspect of it, it helps with more so your mold issues when it comes to, to that. But it does also help with the heating and cooling bills, but more so the mold issues. Mm-hmm. Now, you're unique in compared to most other businesses where there, there's a husband and wife team. Right. How do you both balance that out in terms of keeping business at the door? Or, or does it just blend together? Like, how do you navigate that? So I will say when we first started, it it we had tried to keep it at the door. He came home. We tried to keep all the business outside the household. <laughs> but when you're starting out and you're small and you're trying to do it all and you're trying to grow your business, it makes it very difficult because you're limited funds when you're first starting out. So you don't have the money to hire office people to help you balance everything during the day. So there was a lot of times where he'd come home and he would still be answering emails and answering phone calls. And when I was answering emails and many times he'd start at 5am and we wouldn't be finished up until about nine, 10 o'clock at night because we were trying to run it all ourselves. But now as we're able to grow, we're able to have more field help, which helps him be able to keep business outside and not have to bring it home. So he doesn't have to answer his phone as much as he used to first when we first started out. We still do have to work together even after hours when he's home. Um, But we try very hard to keep that family business balance where we have specific hours that we work with our business and we do what we have to do for our business. And then that time comes when it's family time and it's time to spend time with our kids and we try very hard to leave that at the door. And so far, since we've been growing and we've been able to get some help, we've been able to do that. Oh, great. Then, of course, those that are listening in, they're probably in a similar journey as you, probably in early on, where they're thinking, oh, what kind of decision did I just make? <laughs> now I have like almost no bandwidth. Can you share kind of some gems or techniques that you use to, because it sounds like you're able to eventually segment slots of time for, for specifically for yourselves, for your family. What, what did you do? So we would just say, we would designate time where we would say, all right, we're going to stop answering calls. We're going to stop answering emails. But let's say four or five o'clock, that's what we would do. And if phone calls came in, he would not pick up the phone. We would keep it to where we weren't going to answer emails and phone calls. And we would have our family dinner and we would spend time with our kids as a family and we, it was hard to do that. I will tell you that, but we were able to start doing that. We just pick a specific time to just say, okay, we're done. This is family time. This is it. And that's what we ended up doing to separate that and to balance everything out. And so far it's working really well because then you get that family time after hours where you're not oh, hold on, I got to get up from dinner and I got to go answer my phone. Or wait, I got to send an email because this customer wants this done now. We were able to just say, nope, this is what we're going to do. Because as a family, while you're running a business, you need that. It's important to have that balance. Thank you. It sounds like you just go ahead and do it. If you don't draw the line from 
who's going to draw the line for you? Exactly. Yeah. You just have to, you have to do it yourself. You have to just say, all right, enough's enough. And this is what it's going to be. And you just have to do it. Now, circling back to your niche field, you touch a little bit about going to another division, like the fire stopping side of business. Mm -hmm. What is that? Share with us. What does that entail? So fire stopping goes inside of the walls. So typically what that does is it's just, you use a basically like a caulk gun and it's a, a material that you put into the walls. And what that does is if a fire happens inside of a building, let's say, and to keep the fire, it tries to keep the fire contained to where it won't, it'll slow it. It will always come out and spread, but this is supposed to slow the spread so it gets gives people more time to evacuate out of the building. So that material always goes inside of the walls and you just apply it in with a caulk gun and it helps prevent, obviously it's like a safety reason. So it helps prevent obviously fires from spreading too quickly. Eventually they do, but it allows more time for people to get out of the building by that barrier being there to stop the spread from happening so quickly. Mm-hmm. Now, is this more of a function or a combination maybe where it's giving people enough time to get out of the building and also potentially mitigate the spread of damage? Or if there's an out of control fire, it's really just getting people out? I would say that it does help prevent more damage from happening. But when a fire is going to go, fire is going to go. It's always going to spread. That's how those work. But this more so is a safety type thing where it will allow you more time to get out of the building. So I think they put that in place more so for the safety of individuals. If you're working in a big office building and there's a fire, God forbid, that barrier being there will help for people to have more time to get out if you, especially if you have a big building with a lot of people working in those build in the building there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was going to be my next question because the first thing that, that I guess maybe stereotypically might think of manufacturing or, or, or buildings, maybe restaurants that deal a lot with fire, but it sounds like it's something that could also be of value in large dense offices. Oh, sure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, they're using it more and more and they're, they're wanting most people now to be certified, like a certified installer. So we actually had to go through a company called Hilti to get certified, to be certified installers. There's different levels of certification. So we're at basically starting out with continuing on the certification level. My husband's actually going to be going in March. He's going out to Texas to go to get a higher certification with Hilti. So they do want you to be, you do have to have knowledge when you're applying it. You can't just be somebody to running in the building and they can't just hire you and say, okay, now go install this. They typically want you to have some sort of certification so you know how to do it correctly. So don't tell me I just can't run around with a super soaker and spray down walls. <laughs> yeah, you can't just say, hey, I want to install Firecock. Let me go ahead and do that for you. You, you got to know what you're doing and how to apply it in. And it's got to be done the proper way in order to be effective. And share with another perspective and what kind of makes you unique compared to other contracts, especially in your sphere. There's a lot of competition. I'll tell you that there's a lot of contractors that do what we do, but I I feel like what separates us from everybody else is the quality of the work. You get a lot of contractors that sure they'll hire guys just to put people there for, to do the job. But if you don't do the job the correct way and you don't do it properly, 
then basically the work that you're putting in and the material that you're installing will fail. Every project has inspections. And I will say that a lot of times we get called in for contractors that hired other installation contractors to do the work. And because they didn't do it properly, they had to call somebody else in because they were failing inspections. So I feel like what sets us aside from everybody else is the quality of the work that we can provide to our customers. And that's what really drove our business too, is we're quick, but we're also very good and detailed at what we do. And we do the job right. And a lot of times it's very rare that we fail an inspection with our work. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you want to get it this for something like this, you want to get it done right the first time, as opposed to going back and this, as you shared an example where the contractor, oh, I went for the cheap route, but now it's going to be more expensive needing someone like you to get it sure. done right. Absolutely. And in the end, it, it really it ends up costing you more money because if you've already paid the contractor the first time that you hired mm-hmm. to do the work and they didn't do it properly, then you got to find somebody else. And then you're paying more money because then you got to pay twice yeah. to have the job done. Now, to, for uh, don't have let's go into too much detail of the procedure going in, but if you're getting called in to fix something, is that something where you would have to undo everything that they did before you layer layer on a, a new foam? Oh yes, absolutely. You have to go in and you have to tear everything off, oh. and then you have to redo it. So not only did you just pay for the labor and the material mm-hmm. the first time, now you're hiring another contractor to come in to redo it. So then you got to repay again for the material cost because there's always material and labor figured in to the project cost. So then you're paying double for both things then at that point. Okay. Thank you for sharing your your story. And for our listeners who either want to pick your brain of how do I balance a family business as a couple and or better yet, get the job done right the first time around so I don't have to call you the second time. How can they best find you? My direct email, you're asking for contact info, yes. right? Okay. So my direct email is robin at knjmechanical.com. And our website is www.knjmechanical.com. And the and is spelled out. It's not the and symbol. All right. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. And our next guest, also a, a former New Yorker, we have Chip Thurston, Chip with Renaissance Bank. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Anthony. Right, share with us uh, your little story of what got you to banking, finance, and brought you down to Georgia. Oh, wow. That's, we'll take a moment. Okay. Got us down to Georgia. I started out and was born in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and watched the Verrazano Bridge getting built. So I'm dating myself, but my family lived all around the um, United States and we ended up in. Um, Atlanta in the early in the middle seventies, mm-hmm. and ended up uh, attending school here at Georgia State, and have lived here since, with the exception of about three years in total, where I lived in northern Florida for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And how did I get into banking? It's pretty interesting. One of my neighbors had known me a couple of years, and she had worked for one of the larger banks in the in the United States, and she asked me. At a pool party, he said, will you talk? Will you come and talk to me about working with our team? I think you would really do well. Mm-hmm. And that led from from that conversation. It led to many other opportunities inside the financial services world. Mm-hmm. 
And that's all been the, in the Atlanta market or in the North Florida market that I've lived in and worked in. I know you've touched on many facets of finance. What got you into the position that you're in now? In starting out, I knew this was right after the Olympics. I knew nothing about business lending or commercial lending, but I managed to put together a loan for a business that probably would have been denied if I knew what I if I known what I was doing. It probably would have been denied, but I just didn't take no for an answer, mm-hmm. and. That business is still in, still moving, moving along and doing well today. Mm-hmm. And it's in downtown Atlanta, and you might even recognize it. It's the it's a music venue and performance venue called the Tabernacle, oh. which used to be called the House of Blues during the, <laughs> during the nineteen ninety six Olympics, mm-hmm. and that just led from one opportunity to the next. Well, you jumped right there because my next question is: What was that one event that made? the cemented decision, yeah, I'm in the right field. I'm assuming that would be it, or do you have other examples or, or cases that, yeah, I'm definitely where I belong? Oh, yeah, sure. And the people you work with are extremely important mm-hmm. as to your success and your continuity in the position and the growth opportunities you you have. So I've worked with a number of the larger national banks and some regional banks and some community banks. Mm-hmm. And where I have landed in, at Renaissance Bank uh, is a really good match from a opportunity standpoint and a performance standpoint. The bank has run well, mm-hmm. and we have a tremendous group on my team, 17 individuals. We had a recent meeting where we, pulled, we put together all of the, our years of experience in our group, we came up with 411 years of experience oh, on wow. our team, which is, that's pretty outstanding mm-hmm. because that's representative of how well we do things mm-hmm. because all of us have experiences from different aspects of banking that have assembled together on in one platform and we do every what we do well. So come and share with us on the subject of banking, you mentioned about giving out loans. I, my understanding is there were some changes, particularly maybe in the SBA world of things. Give us a, an audience, like insight as to what those, cha- those changes are and what opportunities are available. Sure. The Small Business Administration has what is defined by them as the SOP or Standard Operating Procedure. It's essentially a rule book and guidebook as to how you do what you do inside SBA lending. And there are finite definitions as to what's what can be done. And there's also some nuanced definitions as to what you might do. Mm-hmm. And it's up to us to interpret the difference between the you best do it this way or you can do it another way. Mm-hmm. And there as I said, there's some nuance to that. And what it does is give us some flexibility in making lending decisions. And recently, last year in uh, August 1st, there was a new iteration of the operating procedure policy released, and it was released to much fanfare and preparation, but it wasn't really complete. And again, it was amended back in the middle of November. So we finally think we've got our hands and heads around it with all the the changes that were made. Mm -hmm. And they're very, for the most part, very positive and have had a beneficial effect 
on how we can approve loans and how we can also look at lending opportunities inside the business community. So what are those new opportunities that was not available before prior to this change? Sure. We'll specifically speak to one point and we'll just keep it on that focus for the time for the interview session today. Prior to November of last year, the SBA channel for lending was a really good opportunity for business owners to either sell their business to somebody else or for someone like yourself to buy a professional practice. Say if you're in your investment or in your investment group, you had somebody who wanted to buy a practice, you wanted to buy their existing practice, you could come to us and we could do an evaluation to see if that made sense. But it was an all or nothing type of event. And it had to be 100% sale and the individual or individuals who own the business had to be exited out of that business within 12 months. Mm-hmm. No, no other choice. And that was, that was it. So come November of 2023, we now have an opportunity for, and this reflects from a demographic standpoint, as well as, you know, up with so many individuals in the quote baby boomer generation, mm-hmm. considering retiring or changing gears, moving into a different stage of their life. They own a small business. Maybe they have a family member or a son, daughter, cousin who is interested in buying the business and they still want to retain some type of ownership in it. Mm -hmm. So now we are able to do a partial acquisition of a business wherein the owners or owner can still participate if if they keep their ownership level at less than 20%. So if somebody comes to the table and wants to buy your business, mm-hmm. say it's worth the enterprise value is $2 million and they want to buy 81% of the business. So by doing that, they can take control of the business. The owner who's selling can remain indefinitely as, or have an exit strategy that's planned out mm-hmm. and can still participate in the business and that seller at the owner that's selling does not have to participate in the guarantee or be a guarantor on the business acquisition loan Mm -hmm. that the new owner is applying for, which gives some flexibility to consider how this can all work because it it doesn't have to be just one individual buying a business. Mm -hmm. It could be four they could all be buying 20, 21% or what have you mm-hmm. that comes up as long as it's more than a comes, it leaves the owner, the seller with less than 19% or less ownership in the company itself. Mm-hmm. So this gives us as a lender, some more tools in our toolkit to have conversations with buyers and sellers, both sides of the table. And they have, this has opened up a conversation and a channel that heretofore we didn't not even have the opportunity to consider. Yeah. So by doing this, the SBA and the SBA governing administration that's based out of Washington, DC and Sacramento, California is acknowledging the demographic changes in our population. Mm -hmm. And is, this is accommodating and encouraging these business transitions. 
And this could be con- particularly compelling for, say, a family business, maybe a family farm or a family heating and cooling or mechanical contractor that is multi-generational. And they are at the point in time where, what do we do? What's the right exit strategy? And this provides us a a basis for conversation with a estate planning individual Mm. or firm and and or CPA and or the buyer and seller's legal counsel that negotiate the business contract for sale. Mm -hmm. And we call that in the banking industry, we call that a purchase and sale agreement. That was a lot of gems being dropped. And I imagine for those who are listening in, this is the first time their ears are perking. Wait, I, I don't have to do it 100% or, or nothing. And now it sounds like there is at least some kind of release valve. That's a, that is a very good way to describe it. Mm-hmm. You can keep your hand on the, the wheel, but you don't have to have your foot on the accelerator and your foot on the brake as well. Mm-hmm. So that gives flexibility where heretofore there really was not. Mm-hmm. Like I said earlier, it was an all or nothing event. Yeah. Now, is there any limitations in terms of industry or is it really just the ownership percentage that they're keen on? There, there's, it's no, there's no restriction by industry mm-hmm. there that's been identified. We're not aware of anything like that. Okay. But as far as the ownership percentage I used was just an example from a current case where completing mm-hmm. and it's been it's taken several months to navigate because there's you can look at these type of business acquisitions as just a straight stock purchase mm-hmm. of the business where you're buying the remaining stock the whole all the stock of the business or like I said 81% of the stock of the business and that can be done over a period of 10 years and sometimes a business will also have real estate associated with it that changes the the metric somewhat because we can do we can look at depending on the value of the business and the value of the real estate that the business holds and equipment we can consider extending the term out to 25 years oh which changes the math on the entire equate on the entire purchase and sale agreement mm-hmm. so that's a that gives flexibility and the working with an estate or an estate planner and a CP and the buyer and seller CPAs, we can figure out what's the best way to approach this. Sometimes there's a reason for the real estate to be retained by the seller. They want to retain that and maybe take an income stream for several years so they don't have a tax hit all at once and then have a negotiated first time to this plate, so to speak offer on the table with their per- the business purchaser that have the first opportunity to, to buy the real estate, say in five years or seven years or what have you. Mm-hmm. And that gives additional flexibility to the transaction. This certainly opens up a lot of opportunities that was not prior around for succession planners, particularly people in the tax planning sphere, financial planning sphere, business attorneys and, and, and the like. Correct. Previously, the estate planning universe consisted of quite a bit of insurance, key man or otherwise, Mm -hmm. for this type of transaction. 
And then there was always the tax aspect to this. How do you arrange this? How do, what's, the best, what's the best way to approach this from a tax stand, taxing standpoint? Mm-hmm. Depends on where you are, what state, municipality, et cetera. But it, it provides additional elbow room around the negotiating table mm-hmm. for both seller and buyer. So for our listeners who, who are just learning this for the first time, whether they are a professional servicing other business owners or a business owners themselves wanting to not have their foot on the gas or on the brakes anymore, but would like to have their hands on, on a wheel once in a while, how could they best uh, reach out to you and, and learn more? Sure. The easiest way to catch uh, up with me is on LinkedIn. On LinkedIn, it's easy to find me, Chip Jertson. There's, I think I'm the only Chip Jertson on LinkedIn. Do you want to spell that out for our yeah, listeners? Last name is <laughs> last name is G J E R T S E N, and I do post mm-hmm. regularly. Just recently posted some conversations about SBA lending, and we saw over three thousand impressions in just a few days. Mm-hmm. Whatever we're, I'm doing and is is connecting with people, and also we keep a link whenever I post for the link LinkedIn. Um, channel, we have a direct link that drops right onto our department page at Renaissance Bank. So if you click on the link underneath my posting, mm-hmm. it'll drop directly to our department page at our corporate website. Right. Well, thank you. You're welcome. And our next guest, former business owner, book writer, and now a commercial real estate professional. Scott, welcome to the show. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Um, it's a great afternoon. Mm-hmm. So share with our, our audience, so for those who are first listening in, who might not have heard your first debut on, on, on the show, a little about your background and uh, what got you into commercial real estate. So I come to commercial real estate really because of a, a love of my community which started out owning a small business for over 25 years. I say I'm one of the few practicing commercial real estate professionals that actually owned a business and Mm. sold a business. And therefore, I represent businesses, not landlords traditionally. I help businesses when they need to lease office or a warehouse, or we do have some restaurant clients, Mm. several different industries that we've focused on. But it's a lot of fun because I understand the small business conundrum Robin, the cash flow equals lifestyle pain. And so really as a small business, anything under a hundred million is grossing is where we focus. They took a big risk at some point and to start their own business and to have a better lifestyle. And I did as well. So I come from that background. And once I sold my business, I was like, how can I stay involved with my community and Really, a lot of our community is based on property taxes. So I started thinking about this. What pays for the parks and the schools and all property, commercial property? Okay, commercial real estate. So there I am. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned specifically only representing owners. So for those who are not in the know, share with the audience, what does that mean? I thought when I work with someone, they they work on my behalf. Exactly. So a lot of people will um, understand this more from a residential when they're buying a home. They drive around and they call a name on the sign. That person represents the seller of that home. Same thing when you're leasing property or purchasing property. I encourage my clients, yeah, look around on LoopNet or Crexy or any of the commercial real estate uh, websites. Mm-hmm. 
But when you call that person, they're representing the landlord. And there are a lot of what I call trip-up clauses in commercial leases. Mm -hmm. And they never come along until something goes sideways. And that's just the experience level of, of Chip and Robin. You can hear it from their stories. And I have been tripped up by some commercial real estate leases in my own experience of owning my own businesses. I really want to negotiate that and make it as beneficial as possible for the business owner. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you, you want to help those new business owners who are just dipping their toe in a pool and, and find out it's not a bunch of piranhas. Sure. Even if you've signed several leases, you, you may not have needed an issue. Maybe you didn't have a flood. Maybe maybe you didn't have a landlord mm-hmm. unresponsive to some needs. Uh, you need, maybe you didn't get tripped up by something. But for example... When you first sign a lease, there's a commencement date. When is that commencement date? Mm-hmm. Is it when you get the certificate of occupancy, which Robin's probably familiar with, these types of things and making a project happen? Or is it when the landlord is finished with their work? Oh. And as we know, there's lots of things that can slow down work. If a contractor does the raw, the job a little goofy and someone else has to come and fix it, wait, now we're three weeks back. A uh, perfect example, I had a, a tenant. Uh, we leased 15,000 square foot, what I call mini box store. It had been bank owned because of issues with somebody else's cash flow. But because of that, the bank, they just shut everything down. They weren't going to pay anything. On, so the building had been empty for almost a year mm-hmm. when it came time landlord we signed the lease we made sure that we that our lease commencement did not start until all the infrastructure was operating correctly and one of those things was the fire suppression system oh. which needed a whole new panel and we just happened to be in pandemic flow crunch of everything electronic being ordered and needed. And so instead of being able to move in when the landlord promised, Mm. it was going to be another six weeks. So you start running into real cash crunch on the part of my tenant, my my client, Mm -hmm. who had started hiring people and relocating managers and moving inventory to take over this space. So it took someone like me, an advocate for the tenant, Mm -hmm. this would never happen if you had just called the name on the sign and just said, oh, things should be okay. But I was able to get on the phone and make sure that we had a proper functioning fire suppression system set up so the county could inspect within 10 days, not six weeks. But it took a little friendly, firm conversation. (laughs) So you want to have someone doing that because you are running your business mm. as that's why you hire any professional advisor um, because you you've got your head in your business and you're running crazy mm. to, to make sure it keeps going. So, so that's one example uh, for the listeners going, well, wait, there's more to it. You're telling me that the person I call on the billboard is not looking out. For, for my interest? So it's interesting. A lot of people feel that when they hire someone like me to represent them, mm-hmm. that it's going to cost them money. They don't understand that the commission that I get paid is already been negotiated between the landlord and the commercial real estate agent whose name is on the sign. Mm-hmm. But his job is to call and call on landlords. Mm-hmm. So he 
will very readily split that commission with me when I bring them a good, solid, financially stable tenant or buyer for their property. Mm -hmm. Because he doesn't want to run around calling on businesses. He's calling on landlords. I own a business. I love talking to businesses. I'm like, how are your people? How's your cash flow? Mm -hmm. Where are we going to be in three to eight years? So let's make this lease or building we're purchasing fit in with your overall P&L and pro forma going forward. And so it doesn't cost you anything to hire a tenant buyer rep. Mm -hmm. It actually costs you money if you don't, because you're not going to know this landlord just bought this building. He wants to get it leased up because he has certain things to meet for the bank. When they agreed to the loan to buy the building, they have to have a certain level of occupancy and a certain number of cash flow or vice versa. This landlord wants to, he's doing this thing of flipping a house. He's flipping mm -hmm. his commercial property. Understanding the nuances, which is a great word Chip used earlier. I love that. Find out more about some of that SBA stuff. If you've got the experience, like, like Chip and Robin, you know where you can wiggle mm -hmm. and get things done. So for, for those that are listening, okay, now, now I'm just hearing this difference between agents that are tenant representative only versus someone that's really representing the landlord's behalf. And with your experience and kind of some trip ups as being a business owner prior, for the listeners, look, what are some things that you specifically hone your eyes in when reviewing a potential offer or contract? Sure. So on a lease, there's a couple of specific things. One, I mentioned a minute ago, when does the commencement start? Mm -hmm. We don't want it to start and you have not been able to move in and start your business. Suddenly you're paying rent mm -hmm. and my business isn't going because of some other foul up. The other uh, thing I look at is remedies and time of remedy that the landlord has committed to. Mm -hmm. It's something that happens next door something you get a flood or you get a roof that leaks or mold. Who knows what happens in your space and you cannot do business well, there are certain time limits of remedy that the landlord has to adhere to. And that lease is written in their favor. Oh. It's the landlord's lease. doesn't mean we can't negotiate it. Do they have 120 days or do they have 60 days to mm -hmm. remedy or 30 days? An HVAC unit. Again, <laughs> the HVAC units always have a nice clause in there that uh, you, the tenant, are responsible for everything inside your walls, which makes perfectly good sense. Everything on the outside is responsibility of the landlord. Inside your walls is an HVAC unit worth anywhere from 6000 to 40000 depending on the type of space you have, mm -hmm. maybe several units. I always make sure that we go into that, and you're responsible for it, which is you have a regular maintenance agreement with a certified contractor. Mm -hmm. Change of filters every three months. Sounds easy. But I like to make sure that there's a cap of at least 1000 sometimes we get pushed to $2,000 a year for maintenance that, that you, the tenant, are responsible for. Anything over and above that, a major catastrophic failure, mm -hmm. is a capital improvement that should be the landlord. Mm. Just had a client just text me yesterday. They've been in the building four years. The accounting now has a new fire inspector. They've been inspected four times, five actually, before they moved in. Whoa. And now this new guy is saying, oh, you need a bell as a part of your fire suppression. And that bell costs, and it's a, hookups, $1,200. Just bing. They're like, well, th isn't this a landlord expense? So on these instances, yes, you still need it. So 
that's one thing that I bring that's unique. I'm not done with the transaction. Mm-hmm. I'm here to be your real estate department. A lot of people had a real estate department in the cubicle next door. You just lean over and ask them a question. <laughs> yeah. My joke, you can't see this, is I'm, I'm in this cubicle next door. I'm just in the phone. It's a little square. Just if you have questions, call, and that's what my clients do. So if something comes up, Scott, what do we do? Okay, this is let's work this out. So you don't just find a spot for them to, to hang a shingle. You're, you're there through and through to, to make sure that their business is operating and the contract is, for lack of a better word, doesn't hurt them as much in a pocketbook in the long run from surprises. Yes, we're, there's so much more uh, to commercial real estate than just finding an address. Mm-hmm. Being a business owner prior and having signed leasing contracts on the other side, you've probably seen a lot. Yeah, and one of the biggest fears for a lot of small businesses, I don't want to sign a long-term lease. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to be that committed. You've committed yourself to this <laughs> business already. You're going to quit in three years? But I, I always make sure that they understand there are ways to get out of leases. Mm-hmm. And I had to do it personally myself. And it can be done. So part of my, I call it coach salting in a way. I, you know, holding hands, kumbaya, we're going to get through this together and, and show them that there are multiple ways. And that's all just, you're experienced running your business. You're not experienced signing leases for commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. Great. So for our listeners that are just hearing this for the first time, whether it's learning, oh, I, I could have someone that exclusively represents me, understands my pain point as a business owner, and is going to be there after the deal is closed, how can they best find you? Gosh, I'd love to have a conversation. Thanks. Thanks, Anthony. So Scott Ward, we're ITRA Global Atlanta. So we do have offices around the world. And I'm on LinkedIn as well. That's, I think, the become the great connector. But we do have a website and you can go to ITRA Global and then there's a link there to the Atlanta office. And gosh, would love to converse about anyone's business, high points, low points, and where we're going in the future. Mm -hmm. I'm just fascinated by people who take a blank sheet of paper and turn it into a business with an idea. It's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. This has been fun. So for our universal question section where we bring our guests back to close out the show with the theme here is two questions I would like for our guests to share some perspective for our listeners. So the first question is what questions do you wish your clients would ask you? Followed by, since we're all running businesses here or have help with other business owners is what advice would you give new business owners coming into the field now. So to give our uh, guests some time to think, this of course is now the obligatory uh, compliance section. This show is uh, sponsored and brought to you by yours truly, Anthony Chen with Lighthouse Financial Network. Securities and advisory services offered through Ozaic member FINRA SIPC. Ozaic is separately owned and other entities and or marketing names, products or services referenced here are independent of Ozaic. Our main office address is at 575 Broad Hollow Road out in Melville, New York, 11747. You can best reach me at my number at 631-465-9090. Extension there is 5075. Or since we're on a LinkedIn binge here, you can also find me on LinkedIn. It's just my name, Anthony Chen, or my email, which is also my full name, Anthony Chen, C-H-E-N, at L-F-N-L-C. Com. Now to bring out three guests back in, the, again, the first question was, what question do you wish your clients would ask you followed by what advice 
would you give to new business owners coming into the field now? Robin. So I would say for that, for the first question, what question would I wish that our clients asked us is, I guess I would ask, I want them to ask us what, how long something will take as far as a project goes, get a little more detail from us. I think communications a problem in my industry. So I wish they would ask those questions. Mm -hmm. And if I had to give advice to anybody that wanted to start a business, I would definitely say have a plan, have a business plan put together, know your finances, know what kind of money it's going to entail for the business. And just look at the whole picture all the way around instead of just because you're an expert in the industry doesn't always mean everything about running a business. So definitely know the whole picture, what you're getting into. Thank you. Chip? As far as uh, having clients ask me what I would like to know about them, it would be just Disclose everything. Just let me know what's going on and what's the underlying premise behind your expansion plans, your growth plans, or why you want to go into business in the first place. Mm -hmm. And it had better be a lucid conversation or else it's not been thought out. Mm -hmm. And that saves time for all concerned. As far as advice on for a new business owner, And I'll do something that's specific to the state of Georgia because, and I believe most other states have something that's similar to this. Don't overlook the resources available through the small business development centers that are across the state. And and in some states, they're called, they're named something else or something similar to it. But they're staffed by individuals who are usually previous business owners, have some type of academic background, and some reason or rationale for being there. They enjoy helping people. And they can, in their own discerning way, they can help a business owner or prospective business owner define what will work, what won't work, and have them consider, offer them something some aspects or channels to consider that they may not have previously. Thank you. Scott. My client who would, the question I would like them to ask me is how far in advance should I start renegotiating my current lease? Mm. Don't wait because you will not get the best deal unless we get uh, a good market survey and get some competition. Even if you want to stay where you are. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yes, the best advice I would give, very similar to what Robin said, is is pull together a good team. You want to have a good banker. You want to have a good accountant, one that's not a bookkeeper, although that's good. You you need a counselor and a good attorney. And so pull together a good team. And then, to, to your point, get into the business and go work for a very similar business that's not your family business, if it's a similar thing. Maybe get out and get some experience actually working in the business for someone else's business in the sense of, you know, okay, this is the real world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, I do, well, if I take this jump. 
Yeah. Thank you all. And again, uh, to reiterate for our listeners, we'll come back to you. Robin, how can our listeners uh, best find you? They can best find me. They can even actually email me. I am also on LinkedIn under Robin Roden. That's R-O-B-I-N-R-O-D-E-N or Robin at K and J mechanical.com. And I believe the and you mentioned the, the word is spelled yes. out. Yes, it is. So it's the and spelled out, not the sign. Great. Well, thank you. And Chip? We'll stay with LinkedIn as well. It's uh, Chip Jertsen. Last name is G-J-E-R-T-S-E-N. And you'll that's easy to find. And my contact information is there. And you'll see recent postings. And all those postings have a direct link at the bottom of them, which will drop you right into our Renaissance Bank's SBA team department page where you have all my contact information plus all my team members on there who are in different states. Thank you. And Scott? Yep, Scott Ward, uh, ITRA Global Atlanta. That's spelled I-T-R-A, ITRA Global Atlanta on LinkedIn. Love to talk to you. Great. Thank you all. All right, and now for a little what's called Anthony's Financial Take. Uh, as you've heard here from our three amazing guests, is really finding the right team and getting the job done right the first time around instead of going for, for the cheaper alternative and needing to come back and, and fix the mess uh, prior. So when you're interviewing an advisor or a little bit, in my part, a little biased financial advisor, you want to ask them the right question in terms of understanding the process, the philosophy, and making sure they ask you questions to best understand your goals. Now, this kind of, of course, goes beyond the financial advisory world. It goes with conducting business with a lawyer, a banker, a contractor, or even a commercial real estate rep. Anyone you plan on committing to trust for the long term with things that are most valuable to you, whether it's life goals, your business, family, and most precious time, you want to make sure you get it right done the first time. And that's how I'm going to end this show. Thank you for listening in to Family Business Radio.